Welcome back to A Push for Understanding. This is chapter 30 of Spielbogle. After the fall, the Western world in a global age. And, hey, this is the last chapter. We've made it this far. Um, you know, only, like, I don't know however long this is going to be, but probably about, like, 40 or 50 minutes uh, to go until the end. So, we're so close. And I'm not going to waste your time. We're going to get right into it with the fall of the Soviet Union. So, uh, the Soviet Union at this point, if you recall from the last podcast, had been declining for uh, quite a long time, but uh, sort of the the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union is going to begin with Gorbachev. And Gorbachev is initially elected to uh, the Soviet during de-Stalinization. So during Khrushchev's de-Stalinization program, he is sort of uh, sent into the Soviet to begin making some lower-level decisions behind the scenes. Um, and this makes him a reformist. He's a, seen as sort of this new generation of communists because he didn't fight in World War II. Uh, he was not in power during Stalin's era. And so he sort of is able to see things for what they are and not have a blind spot for, um, you know, what Stalin was. And he's not really influenced by the Stalin era uh, as much as he is uh, by the Khrushchev era. And so Gorbachev is a communist, but he's not as... as as far left as Joseph Stalin or Khrushchev may have been. And so he's more willing to acknowledge that the Soviet Union has stagnated. Uh, particularly, he points out in Science and Technology that um, the, Soviet Union, the Soviet Union has completely fallen behind uh, the West, especially in the development of computers. And this is mostly due to a lot of mismanagement and inefficiency within government funding and government spending and government action. So Gorbachev, he launches... He launches two programs to try and uh, sort of rebuild the Soviet Union. He uh, focuses on perestroika, or restructuring in Russian. This grants minimal private ownership, and property is and private property is granted to the people. Uh, this is some small reforms, really, um, sort of going back to Lenin and his new economic policies. Essentially, Gorbachev recognizes that the government has gotten so big that it's very difficult to run all of these small companies. And so sort of opening up the markets a little bit and having a communism with a, with a human face is what he uh, sort of brands this as is just having smaller minimal um, private ownership of companies, allowing sort of small mom and pop shops to open up around the Soviet union helps stimulate the economy and begin uh, sort of, ushering in this new phase of a, again, like I've been calling uh, the economies of Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia, sort of a hybrid economy between uh, communism and capitalism with a heavy lean towards communism. Uh, Gorbachev also launches his policy of glasnost, which is openness in Russian, and this is basically trying to open up uh, free speech and a lot of the freedoms that have been suppressed during the Stalin, uh, Khrushchev, and Brezhnev era. So um, he allows papers to begin criticizing him. The Pravda is a communist paper from Moscow, and it begins criticizing the government and government corruption. He removes Article 6, which makes commu the Communist Party the leading party of the Soviet Union, essentially saying that uh, the Communist Party can be removed from power if they ever stray too far or they become unpopular with the people. He creates a Soviet parliament with competitive elections, and eventually uh, these competitive 
competitive elections uh, will include uh, capitalists in them who seek to reform uh, the Soviet Union and bring it to a communist state. Uh, he weakens the power of the Communist Party and empowers the president, uh, basically sort of getting rid of a lot of the party hardliners like Brezhnev, who uh, basically served the party instead of the people of the Soviet Union. Uh, he removes suppression of ethnic minorities, and this is the big one, because uh, pretty much the moment he removes a lot of the censorship around ethnic minorities and uh, sort of the, the military presence in these areas, ethnic riots begin to erupt, and the army is sort of unable to stop them. And this is because the Soviet Union is comprised of a bunch of ethnicities. Uh, if you take a look at um, where what land Russia owns today and what land the Soviet Union owned, you'll notice that there are like 15 countries um, that the Soviet Union uh, controls in the 1980s that eventually are, eventually break away from the Soviet Union. And that just kind of gives you an idea of how, mu how many uh, different ethnicities were living within this country. Uh, particularly prevalent are the Baltic states, Belarus, and Ukraine. They are, I guess, of the of the Soviet republics, probably the most wealthy, aside from Russia, and they are the most uh, populous, especially Ukraine. Um, as you'll know today, Ukraine is a very large country and a very um, a very influential country, uh, to say the least. And so uh, all these different ethnicities sort of being released from these cages allows them to begin erupting into into protest in the army, who's reeling from a very brutal war in Afghanistan, is, un is unable to suppress them. And so uh, areas like Georgia, Latvia, Moldova, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, Lithuania, all see riots uh, taking place within their territories, and people begin protesting and wanting independence. And so this eventually leads to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Essentially, as all these dif different ethnic states begin to break away, instability erupts in Moscow, and conservative forces trying to, I guess, um, bring bring the Soviet Union back to what it once was, uh, captures uh, Gorbachev and tries to seize power. These conservative forces, quote conservative forces, because they're not really they're not really like right leaning conservative forces. They are um, conservatives in that they are trying to maintain uh, the status quo and go back to sort of uh, how it was under Brezhnev. Uh, these conservatives are largely um, members of the KGB, or the secret police, and they are um, military officials. So they're trying to sort of bring back what used to be the Soviet Union, not Gorbachev's reforms. Um, this doesn't go so well, um, because Gorbachev and Boris Yeltsin sort of are able to break the coup. Boris Yeltsin becomes uh, sort of the president of the Russian uh the Russian state within the Soviet Union and becomes very affluent and sort of rises to popularity at this point. Yeltsin basically sends in a bunch of military forces to try and break this up. A uh, large standoff basically uh, breaks the, the kidnappers' attempts at taking Gorbachev. And at this point, basically the only effect that these uh, kidnappers have is that they just collapse the Soviet Union faster because this points to a whole stream of economic, political, and social problems within the Soviet Union, and it allows for a lot of people to begin uh, sort of taking their lives into their own hands and beginning to look towards uh, a time after the Soviet Union. You know, a embarrassment of the Soviet leader 
is an embarrassment to the Soviet Union itself. And so trying to see a world without the Soviet Union becomes a lot easier for a lot of these countries. So in December 1991, Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia all decide to leave the Soviet Union. They break up, basically saying that, like, um, they're each going to leave this pact of Soviet states. Um, and then on December 25th, uh, 1991, Gorbachev surrenders his power to Yeltsin, basically avoiding this massive civil war within the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union quickly collapses. Like I said, like 15 different countries pop out of the Soviet Union. And Russia it sort of assumes the role of sort of what the Soviet Union used to be. And so we get back to Russia. And, you know, it's been almost uh, like 100 years <laughs> since Russia has existed. And now we're going back to talking about them as Russians. So Yeltsin basically seeks to abandon communism quickly. He sort of just kind of assumes that he's going to be the leader because uh, he was the leader prior to and he doesn't have time to have a dispute with Gorbachev. And Gorbachev, uh, for his credit, does not try and dispute this. He he avoids a, a large conflict uh, in the unstable world of um, just basically 15 new countries existing, um, you know, overnight. Gorbachev um, avoids a lot of war and a lot of struggle at this time period. And so Yeltsin basically rises to power, and he... In the Soviet Union, he was seen more as a moderate who wanted to reform communism. During this time period, he wants to ab abandon communism quickly. But that's very difficult to do because you're a brand new country, you have economic hardship and social chaos. And also the transition is very difficult because you have a lot of uh, former communists and a lot of former nationalists uh, who want to go back to a time of the Soviet Union. And so for about 10 years throughout the 1990s, Russia is in a state of constant chaos. Uh, Chechnya begins to rise up. The Chechen people um, eventually fight this very brutal uh, civil war to try and break away, like the rest of uh, the Caucasus regions, like Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. Um, Chechnya tries to break away, but the Russians are not really... They don't want that to happen like the rest of the the like the rest of the Soviet republics, and so they brutally brutally crack down on the Chechen people. So in the first Chechen war, uh, the Chechens are actually able to rise up and defeat the Russians. Uh, by the time of Putin, he is going to put down these Chechen revolts and basically destroy the entire region, um, and put basically this yes man who's still in power today, um, in charge of the Chechen people. So, um. A lot of corruption and instability are happening within Russia. The army's not really able to do anything. And so Yeltsin basically resigns in uh, 1999, and Vladimir Putin comes to power. And you know it's not good <laughs> when we're suddenly talking about people who are still alive today uh, and who are still in charge today, because Putin comes in with a very aggressive policy against Chechnya. He basically... I mean, I would go so far to call it an ethnic genocide against the Chechen people and um, sort of everything in Chechnya because he just destroys so much of the of the region. Uh, he also really doubles down on sort of moving away from communism. He opens up the economy by allowing people to purchase land, and he cuts taxes to boost the economy as well. And then Putin basically becomes full dictator. Oh my gosh, who would have guessed? Uh, he becomes like this dictator of Russia. He censors the press and the speech. Um, but although he's unable to run for re-election, he basically steps down to being prime minister and allows his friend, 
uh, to sort of take the role of the presidency. And then they switch in 2012. He comes back to the presidency and then basically declares himself president for life. I think, uh, if I remember correctly, about a year ago, he said he would be, he extended his term to being until like 2032. So he's got a long time as the leader of Russia. Um, and then in 2014, very important, Putin seizes Crimea from Ukraine. And so that sort of just gives you a, a show of what the Soviet Union has collapsed into, what's sort of happened with the Russian state and how uh, the foreign policy and internal policy of Russia has changed significantly and also really hasn't changed all that much. Uh, now let's go back to 1989, because there are a lot of revolutions that take place across Eastern Europe as well. So in 1989, Gorbachev admits that he's not going to intervene in the eastern states if they vote or if they uh, sort of rise up and denounce communism and move against uh, their communist governments. And so right away, um, a lot of capitalists and a lot of uh, democratic reformers uh, basically rise up in a lot of these countries and overthrow them. So uh, Poland is the first to protest and adopts democracy right away. Hungary's economic collapse leads to basically a weakening of their government, and then eventually the people in, of Hungary rise up. You'll notice that Poland and Hungary, uh, the first two countries to revolt against the Soviet Union uh, in, the in the 1950s, are the first two uh, to leave the Warsaw Pact. They're the first two countries to um, have their people rise up and overthrow their governments. Czechoslovakian uh, demonstrations and the communist rule communist rule. They basically weaken the government to the point where uh, they're no longer able to be sort of seen as legitimate, and uh, the government basically collapses. Uh, Romania is pretty much the only country that has serious resistance to this change because Ceausescu is crazy. He's a, he's a very, very crazy dictator, and so he basically tries to violently crack down uh, the army is sent in to sort of break up these protesters, uh, but when protesters begin to come out in larger and larger numbers, calling for his the end of the regime, the army eventually turns against him, and Ceausescu is executed, I believe, December 23rd, if I remember correctly. Uh, it's, it's a very quick revolution, and Romania is the last country to sort of turn away from the Warsaw Pact. And so uh, in Eastern Europe, despite a lot of freedom, uh, Eastern Europe is still divided and confused. Uh, they have very little history of democracy within their nations. Uh, you'll remember that in the interwar period, a lot of democracies were put in charge of these eastern states, and they pretty much completely collapsed because these countries didn't have a long history of democracy. And you see this again uh, at this point in time, where because they don't have a long history of democracy, they don't really know how to form a democracy. And their populations also have to sort of get used to um, democracy as opposed to an authoritarian or totalitarian government. Also, economic changes prove very painful and hard uh, because you're basically changing the entire economy. You had a population that was entirely reliant on the government for jobs, and then suddenly everybody becomes unemployed basically overnight. Uh, that's going to create a lot of economic changes within your country. Also, little investment prior to the collapse also leads to basically um, a lack of competition between Eastern Europe and the world because uh, Eastern Europe just doesn't have as good technology and manufacturing and industrial output. 
And because of that, when they become independent states, they need to play catch up. Uh, they need to invest more in technology and growth. Uh, and that means that they can't really invest in the welfare reforms that a lot of Europe had been investing in at this point. However, democracy and capitalism prevail. Nonetheless, Poland becomes extremely strong and a much richer nation uh, than it was intended to. It was one of the fastest growing countries in Europe uh, by the early 2000s. Czechoslovakia breaks up peacefully. They break up into Czechia and Slovakia, just ethnic tensions or ethnic differences between the two uh, lead to a breakup. But this was a very good breakup, actually. Um, they They do not have a violent... Um, sort of revolution. Uh, they just sort of split their ways. I believe it's called the Velvet Revolution, um, where basically no one really fired any gunshots. They just sort of broke up and, and went their separate ways. Uh, Romania begins to accept Western values and begins to fight corruption. And NATO and the EU expand into Eastern Europe. So in 1997, Poland, Czechia, and Hungary joined NATO. And a lot of Eastern Europe um, from that point, uh, in the early 2000s will begin to join as well. In 2004, 10 nations across Eastern Europe uh, joined the EU. So as NATO and the EU begin to expand into Eastern Europe, a lot more economic opportunity and prosperity begins to develop in this region as well. And then finally, we get to the reunification of Germany. Demonstrations pretty much collapse Eastern Germany right away, even if uh, there was sort of an, a, a very leftist government that uh, sort of s supported Stalin and did not want to see uh, the breakup of uh, East Germany into a capitalist country. The demonstrations demonstrations become too much. Uh, the border comes down between East Germany and West Germany, and the Berlin Wall collapses in 1989. Uh, political parties are eventually allowed in East Germany, with the Christian Democrats winning their first election with over 50% uh, of the vote. And the, the Christian Democrats in East Germany begin to negotiate a German unification with West Germany, and sort of uh, reuniting the two countries that had been divided uh, since World War II. Speaking of Eastern European empires collapsing, let's talk about Yugoslavia. So when Tito eventually dies, there's no real dictator who's going to be able to step up and take the reins of Yugoslavia, mostly because there are so many different ethnicities that nobody's able to really agree on anything. So instead, powers are passed to a parliament, and um, a lot of the ethnic minorities living within Yugoslavia uh, basically decide to use parliament to try and uh, break away and get some independence for their ethnic groups. So this sort of just divides parliament and makes it very ineffective, which leads to its collapse. And um, that is never really a good sign for such a, a diverse empire like Yugoslavia. And so as Serbs begin sort of taking over the control of the government, changing up the government, uh, states begin to leave. And so first we see Slovenia and Croatia, the two most northern states of uh, Yugoslavia, break off. And the Yugoslavians attempt to stop this. They're, they push uh, quite violently into uh, Croatia and take over about a third of the country. Um, but this takes basically a massive toll of life against both the Croatian people and the Serbian people, who are fighting this basically uh, civil war within Yugoslavia. And then Bosnia break, breaks away. And Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, it's 
a complicated place. There are a lot of ethnic Serbs living within Bosnia and Herzegovina, but there are also a lot of Bosnians who live in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So when the Bosnians uh, break away and try and form their own country, um, the Serbian government uh, basically brings in an ethnic cleansing exercise, uh, which reminds a lot of people of the Nazis, which is obviously never a good thing to be reminded of. And so um, this prompts NATO and particularly the United States to intervene. This uh, leads to a lot of bombing campaigns over Yugoslavia during this time period. Uh, and that those bombing campaigns free up some uh, time and some uh, some soldiers for Croatia to eventually push the Serbs out of their land uh, and basically retake the third of the country that was lost. And this basically eventually leads to the Treaty of Paris being signed, which creates Bosnia and Herzegovina and allows uh, Slovenia and Croatia to break away. But we're not done, because if you ever think there's just one too many ethnicities in Yugoslavia, you're wrong. There's about a hundred too many. And so um, in Kosovo, the Albanian-speaking group uh, sort of is basically persecuted by the Serbian people. Serbia destroys the autonomy of Kosovo, and so the Kosovoan army rises up uh, to try and resist uh, this Serbian takeover of their uh, territory or, or their country. And so the United States negotiates a peace deal, which basically allows Kosovo to have autonomy for three years, and then they'll rediscuss this issue. Um, Serbia is not a huge fan of this treaty, and so the United States once again is forced uh, to bomb Serbia into submission until they eventually sign the treaty. And then in the 2000s, Montenegro and Kosovo officially break away um, from Yugoslavia. So... I think that's about seven countries uh, that end up breaking away. Oh, and we haven't even talked about um, North Macedonia. So uh, I think that's about eight countries that break away from Yugoslavia at this point. Um, and so uh, this conflict is basically stalled, and a lot of the tensions just sort of get swept under the rug, and everybody's basically given their own country uh, to try and make sure that they don't kill each other. And um, with a lot of these countries in NATO now, besides Serbia and Bosnia, uh, the chance of them absolutely destroying each other is, fortunately, a lot lower. Moving past Eastern Europe, now let's talk about uh, unified Germany. So right after Germany uh, unifies the Christian Democrats who were in charge and basically uh, unify the German country, uh, their popularity, popularity explodes during this time period post-unification, and Germany is suddenly uh, a leading European power once again. They are... Um, I guess besides Russia, the most populous country in Europe, and they're certainly the strongest economically in Europe. Uh, but soon, realization begins to hit as East Germany needs a ton of help. Uh, taxes need to be raised, uh, mostly because uh, East Germany is completely destroyed. A lot of their factories and a lot of their agriculture was uh, completely in ruins, as well as uh, East Germany was very polluted, and just in general, not in very good shape. And so a lot more... Uh, money needs to be raised from the government to be able to support these people, to bring in welfare reforms, to bring basically Eastern Germany up to speed with Western Germany's uh, progress during this, uh, from, I mean, the last 50 years. Also, East Germany's unemployment hits uh, a very high number. Like I said with Czechoslovakia, essentially what you're doing is you're taking... Uh, you, 
you're basically taking your entire country, which was reliant on the government for a job, and cutting them off from that job. And so basically your entire country is all unemployed at the exact same time, and that leads to a lot of suffering. Uh, the East Germans also suffered uh, significantly under the Stasi, secret police. And so just in general, like Eastern Germany is very divided, very paranoid about what may happen, and they're also just suffering economically and socially like they had been for the last 50 years. So the Christian Democrats eventually lose an election, and then they come back with Angela Merkel, and Merkel leads Germany for about 20 years, and in that time period, Merkel expands uh, sort of Germany's power and influence over the world. She's able to expand the power and influence of the EU, basically becomes the president of the EU, and really is able to push Germany Germany and Europe in a more positive direction, and also leads uh, the economic recovery that happens in uh, the 2007 financial crash. And so Germany, uh, under Merkel, really begins to expand and sort of move past um, not only Nazism, which is obviously a a scar on uh, Germany's history, but also move past um, East Germany's sort of pain. Uh, Merkel was from East Germany. She's able to empathize a lot with the East German struggles as she was a child in East Germany. And so she is sort of like the perfect person uh, to represent this moving on time period where, um, you know, she lived under a very authoritarian, repressed state, and eventually becomes the leader of a very progressive, uh, more democratic, more capitalist state. Um, moving on past a unified Germany, let's talk about the UK. So Thatcher uh, dominates politics as the longest-serving prime minister. She's basically has control over the country during the 80s. Um, but she introduces this flat tax, which would basically tax everybody at the exact same percentage. So, uh, you know, whether you make a million dollars a year, a billion dollars a year, or five dollars a year, you're going to pay the same percent in taxes. And that is not very popular with anybody. So her popularity crumbles right afterwards. Her coalition uh, pretty, pretty much just uh, removes her from power, and she's replaced with John Major, who is pretty bad at everything. And so Labour wins in 1997. Uh, Labour's Tony Blair uh, offers this idea of a new hope, a new generation of politicians um, for the first time in like 20 years. Um, it's an over-exaggeration, but basically uh, for the, like the first time in 20 years, Tony Blair is sort of like this breath of fresh air that um, you know this new up-and-coming young politician is going to create a lot of change. Uh, but his support of the Iraq War eventually costs him his own election. He basically sort of works with the Bush administration to justify a war against Iraq um, as as uh, sort of the Iraq War continues to go on, support for it in the UK begins to dwindle, and his support of it costs him the government, his government collapses, and the conservatives win. That leads to Damon, David Cameron winning the prime ministership, and he reforms welfare, he partially privatizes uh, the National Health Service, or like the UK's uh, socialized medicine. Uh, he also breaks from the party and legalizes gay marriage during this time period. Uh, so those are the major reforms that are taking place basically over 30 years. I know I went through them pretty quickly, but honestly, I feel like they're kind of simple to understand. I don't want to say they're super simple to understand, but um, they, they follow a very sort of simple path, in my opinion. Uh, moving on to France a country that does not follow a simple path 
ever. I think it's in their national history to make it as complicated to learn it. So a right-wing party wins the French elections, uh, and they win this basically on a resentment to immigrants, which causes a lot of anger. We'll talk about the migrant crisis that takes place during the early uh, to late 2000s. Uh, they, the right-wing party sort of comes in restricting immigration. They plan on deporting a lot of illegal immigrants, and riots uh, eventually break out in Muslim areas that... Uh, they're mostly suburban areas around Paris that have a large number of Muslims in them, and riots eventually break out as they feel like their people are being attacked and suppressed in these areas. And so this eventually leads to a lot of chaos, and a new president uh, from the right-wing party is elected. He hurts workers in the middle class by cutting taxes for the rich. He alters the 35-hour work week, basically increasing the number of, number of hours uh, with benefits uh, if you worked more time. And he also raises the retirement age uh, to, I believe, 65. And that leads to mass strikes, like we're seeing right now in France. So if you're ever a French government, if you're ever a French, French president, don't raise the retirement age. Don't raise the age uh, to get health care reform or social security because your government will collapse. So don't do that. Um, basically, this government collapse uh, leads to um, a lot of support for the socialist candidates. Um, and so the socialists win the next election. They undo the tax cuts and begin to raise taxes on banks and the rich. They also return the, the retirement age to 65, and they promise to create uh, 60,000 teaching jobs. Um, but they close a lot of factories that aren't performing as well as uh, a lot of other factories in France. And this leads to, again, massive protests. Uh, the approval of the French president uh, falls to 12%. 12%. Do you know how how low that is? 12% approval rating is so, so low for any president. Um, but eventually he's able to rebound his response uh, based on the terrorist attacks. He raises his approval rating to 40%. And we will also talk about the war on terror. Don't worry, I'm not just going to brush through that conversation. But just know that his response to the terrorist attacks by declaring martial law uh, brings his approval ratings back up to about 40%. In Italy, this is going to shock you, corruption plagues Italian politics. In 1996, voters elected uh, the center left-wing party, which is very rare for them to do. Berlusconi was elected uh, prime minister, basically uh, sort of despite himself running to protect himself and his giant media empire. Um, he is very corrupt and resigns in 2011 and is replaced by Monti. Monti uh, raised the retirement age, increased taxes, and simplified the tax code. He was more of a, a uh, sort of a pragmatist. He recognized that there were a lot of problems in 2011, of course, uh, in the middle of a financial collapse, and as an economist, sort of recognizing the world around him. He knows he needs to make some unpopular reforms, so he does sort of the, the right thing, um, uh, but a lot of people react to it in the wrong way. And they vote him out. And his reform socially and politically uh, just proves to be way too unpopular. His government collapses. And then we get Rizzi. And he changes Italian... Uh, he changes and tries to reform um, Italian corruption, trying to eliminate it. And he also attempts to save the economy because during this time period, the economy is completely collapsing in Italy, as it is in most European states. And then finally... 
let's talk about the European Union. And the European Union really begins to expand. So Austria, Finland, and Switzerland joined the EU in 1995, which now has 15 members by that point. By 2000, it represents uh, 370 million people. It's the largest economy uh, when you begin to factor in all of the economies of the European states, and it accounts for about one-fourth of world trade. So being the largest economy uh, in terms of trade, uh, and representing you know more people than the United States, that's a, a major achievement of the European Union. Uh, by 1992, it eliminates barriers of exchange, basically allowing uh, its sort of mission statement is uh, the free exchange of people, goods, services, and capital, just basically allowing the European states to um, see a lot more tourism, a lot more investment, a lot more services, and just sort of stabilize the economies of all the European states together. In 1999, uh, the EU creates a common currency, the euro, and a common bank. The euro has replaced, uh, I believe to this point, 70 nations' currencies. Uh, the 2008 crash basically shakes uh, stability within the euro, but Germany is able to st uh, save it by investing in the EU, particularly Greece. Um, but basically, having all these countries adopt the euro is very risky because... Um, one country making poor financial decisions or one country having a complete economic collapse will mean that the euro becomes basically worthless in 17 countries and 17 other governments collapse. And so tying yourself to the euro is a risky and so far has mostly paid off. It's been a mostly paid off investment, um, but we will see how this begins uh, to develop throughout this century. Whether or not the euro was a good investment is still yet to be uh, seen. The EU also, to a lesser extent, tries to uh, empower itself in terms of diplomacy. The EU has a peacekeeping force of about uh, 60,000 soldiers, and they empower their parliament. Uh, they hope basically to unite uh, all the countries around a, a common foreign policy, but they're not really able to do that because there's so much uh, diverse interests in foreign policy that a lot of the EU can't agree on what they should do or what they should focus on. Uh, and this leads to basically the EU having three major problems. They have uh, basically their financial statement is very risky. And like I said before, one government making the wrong mistake uh, that has that is a part of the Eurozone that uses the Euro in their government, one bad uh, one bad choice could completely collapse the entire system. And so that that's a vulnerability that the EU has sort of tried to work around. Uh, they also have to fight against nationalism, and fighting against nationalism in Europe, as we've seen, pretty difficult, pretty difficult. Europe is very nationalistic, and so um, nationalists oppose the uh, sort of what they see as the erasure of their sovereign sovereignty. We saw this in the UK with Brexit. A lot of nationalists uh, in the UK did not want to be in the EU and have left. Uh, and we also see that the free movement of uh, people is up for debate with an immigration surge. And again, leading back to the migrant crisis, um, just sort of a anti-immigration, anti-refugee sentiment around Europe has put a lot of questions on, should we be allowing people to freely move throughout Europe and the European states? 
but since 2000, the European Union has added 13 new member states. They've also added requirements for uh, how basically you, you request to join the European Union. You have to be a democracy, you have to be a capitalist, or at least generally capitalist, uh, and you have to sort of at least, um, you know, have systems and institutions in place to uh, represent the people and represent the people's needs. Moving on to the United States, the bane of my existence for this chapter, because I never know how much to talk about the United States, but uh, I'm just going to run quickly through what happened. So in the 1990s, Clinton becomes president after George H.W. Bush, uh, and he runs this sort of new democratic platform. He's uh, more conservative, and this leads to the death of the New Deal uh, Democrats, basically, um, Democrats who wanted to see a, a Roosevelt-esque administration happening again. And so he brings in uh, new economic growth with NAFTA. Uh, he brings welfare reforms, basically lessening the um, amount of people who are on welfare and also adding work requirements to welfare. And he also gets his impeachment for his affair with uh, Monica Lewinsky at the time. And then in 2000, uh, George Bush is elected and begins his war on terror. He invades Afghanistan and Iraq after the 9-11 attacks. He creates the Department of Homeland Security uh, to basically try and prevent terrorism in the country. Um, but two pretty big issues happen. The economic collapse of 2008 and, to a lesser extent, Hurricane Katrina expose his ineptness. And basically, a lot of people begin to turn against him. And even though he is not up for election, the Republican Party candidate, John McCain, uh, gets completely uh, creamed in the election, and Obama is elected on hope and change. That is his uh, sort of campaign message. Um, and so he begins to, uh, well, when he comes into office, he has to deal with the 2008 financial, cra financial crash. Uh, so he launches Obamacare uh, to try and provide health care to millions of Americans. Uh, he brings about an economic recovery with a stimulus package. And then in sort of the... Uh, later years of his administration, uh, we see a rise in gun deaths, particularly school shootings, that he is sort of forced to deal with, although not a lot actually changes. I don't really know why the book talks about this so much. Uh, they devote like a whole paragraph to, um, you know, school shootings and gun deaths, which, of course, very important, very important. But also, it's a European history book. I don't really know why they focus so much on um, the United States particularly. Now, let's go back to the war on terror and George Bush. So, terrorism basically replaces communism as the greatest enemy during this time period. Um, and it's it's sort of important to distinguish between two different types of terrorism. There is terrorism that is uh, sort of used to create instability and chaos in the world. Um, think about, like, um, Palestinian groups uh, during the Olympics stealing a lot of... Uh, Israeli players and basically killing them, creating this hostage situation uh, for the Olympic Games. That is just sort of caused at instability for instability's sake. Uh, that does not receive a lot of support across Europe. But what does receive a little bit more support than that are the nationalistic causes, particularly that of the Irish Republican Army, basically a, a terrorist group that wants to reunite uh, Northern Ireland with Ireland. Uh, they see it as sort of the UK's uh, history of just kind of taking Irish culture and Irish land for themselves, and they want to reunite Ireland. That receives um, a little bit more support among the European people and sort of justifies their use of terrorism to a lot of people across the world. And so 
in the 1980s and 1990s. The distinguishment between these two uh, sort of is important, but right after 9-11 and the attacks on uh, the World Trade Center, uh, America is more geared towards uh, defeating terrorism across the world. So a NATO mission overthrows the Taliban in Afghanistan and captures uh, Cabal to establish their own government. Um, and then about two years later, a solo mission led by the United States uh, overthrows Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And the reason that Iraq is less popular uh, and doesn't receive as much support from NATO is because uh, a lot of people don't buy that Iraq was building up uh, nuclear arms and was working with the, with uh, al-Qaeda. Instead, it seems uh, that the Bush administration hoped to invade the country um, to basically... I don't want to say to get oil. Um, there were probably other reasons, but in part because of oil, in part because uh, Saddam Hussein was uh, sort of threatening the United States, um, but not really in the same, not in a terroristic way, more of a uh, ideological way. So um, the United States invades uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, at least um, those are the two official invasions. Uh, the United States invades and gets involved in a lot of crises across the world at this point. And there's a lot of problems with the invasion of Iraq. But the biggest one is that the government uh, that sort of takes over Iraq is not very stable and does not really work all that well with the Iraqi people. And when the United States evacuates forces in 2011 from Iraq, basically um, sort of giving up Iraqi land, uh, the country basically collapses. Uh, the Iraqi government basically collapses right away. Uh, for Islam and the West in general, American intervention in the Middle East basically enrages the Muslim populations from across the world. U.S.-Israeli um, relations upset a lot of the Palestinian and Arabic people uh, across the world. Uh, the United States also See or sought to control Iran, and a coup ends their control in Iran, but a lot of the Iranian people are not happy that the United States got involved in the 1950s with their government, basically installed a dictator. Um, and so a lot of the Iranian people are not happy with the United States and uh, do not support the United States or Israel. The United States soldiers in Saudi Arabia are stationed sort of in uh, culturally important spots uh, for the uh, Arabian people and for a lot of Muslims. And so a lot of these um, American foreign soldiers in, on uh, religiously cultural, religious or culturally important sites uh, is not sitting well with a lot of them and they turn against the United States. And the invasion of Iraq and the death of Saddam Hussein also leads to a lot of people being mad that the United States is basically uh, invading countries on a whim, basically trumping up charges uh, that end up not being true. The Iraq does not have weapons of mass destruction, and this ultimately leads to a lot of instability within Iraq, which spills over into Syria, and we get the rise of ISIS. Um, ISIS launches a lot of terrorist attacks, both against the United States and Western Europe. We talked about with France um, that a lot of terrorist attacks were taking place in Paris. Uh, the government's res response was to bring in martial law and begin investigating people. Um, and eventually takes this like sort of very hardline approach to try and capture the terrorists, which raises uh, the French president's popularity. In Belgium, they also see terrorist attacks, and affiliates uh, of ISIS are seen all across the world, but largely in Libya, Pakistan, and Nigeria, they have a large presence. And so the war on terror 
uh, sort of represents this, again, another invisible enemy like communism, where uh, you're constantly trying to play whack-a-mole and shoot it down wherever it is, whether it's in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Pakistan, uh, whether you've got terrorist attacks in Paris or Rome or London or New York, you've got uh, sort of this ideology that you have to try and fight, and that's very difficult to do. Moving past the war on terror, let's talk about the social developments that take place in mostly Western Europe at this time period. And the first one is the women's movement. So many European populations had stopped growing uh, in the 1960s. The population is actually shrinking in Europe because birth rates are only at like 1.4 to 1.5 uh, per parent. And so that basically means that the population declines because a... Uh, a couple is not producing, uh, you know, more than, or on average, is not producing more than two children, uh, which would be necessary to sustain the population. And so uh, this happens for a lot of reasons, but the biggest one is because women are working uh, working far more, and so they have less time to take care of children. Nearly 50% of women make up uh, the production of each country, which basically means that women are working uh, just around about as much as men do. And so this means that uh, they're able to get an education and work in pretty much any field. Uh, the limitation on where women can work and how much they can get paid is not really in play anymore, although women are also receiving lower wages for the same job, and they're less likely to get advancement. So they're able to get any job, uh, and there's no real limit on you know, their advancement, however, uh, their wages and advancement are less likely to be uh, the same as men during this time period. And so what this basically does is it means that women are working more, they're less likely to be able to sustain their uh, a larger family, and in general industrialization leads to smaller families existing because modern medicine and just better work habits, work habits in general mean that you don't need as many children uh, to live together. And so women basically ally together during this time period to create a conscious raising group. Uh, they want to gain the rights to contraception and a right uh, to have an abortion, which they successfully do across uh, most of Europe and the United States. Uh, colleges also begin to focus on women's history and uh, contributions to history. Women join anti-nuclear movements in the United Kingdom, uh, beginning to protest uh, nuclear proliferation and uh, investments in nuclear arms. Women also join the Green Party movements, especially in Germany. Uh, these Green Party movements want uh, better ecological management and just protections of the environment. And women also uh, begin to organize in the United Nations to, uh, to achieve global equality. And there are two main differences uh, in the sort of developed world, if you will, uh, women are fighting more for equality in uh, politics, in society, and in economics, while uh, women in the developing world um, sort of fight more for what we consider what we what we would consider more basic things, things like education, uh, the right to vote, uh, the right to get an abortion or have contraception, the right to drive. <laughs> like in Saudi Arabia, they only, I think about five years ago, gave women the right to drive in that nation. So uh, a lot more basic rights um, that we would consider just sort of, uh, you know, everyday occurrences uh, for women are not always true, especially in a lot more conservative countries like in the Middle East. Another large um, era of 
social change takes place in immigration. And so this sort of goes with the women's rights movement, because despite the declining birth rates uh, within the European populations, the populations actually begin to grow during this time period as well. And this is because uh, more people are moving into uh, Europe. They are guest workers who are recruited for jobs. Uh, these come mostly from Turkey, North Africa, India, and Pakistan. Uh, millions are immigrated out of sort of the decolonized areas of the world. And this is just because a lot of people who were working with the government lived in these areas. And so as they come back home um, to, you know, where they had, where, where they were working, uh, they begin to contribute contribute to that population instead of the place they were living prior to that. Uh, socially and politically, a lot of these immigrants are unwelcome, especially during crises like economic crises in 2008. Um, this is seen, they're sort of seen as job stealers or criminals. Um, you sort of see this in the United States, the people uh, who come from Mexico, cross over the Mexican border, are like stealing your job. Um, and so this kind of just leads to a lot of xenophobia, racism, and just sort of uh, a lot more anti-immigration policies from Europe itself. Um, and so a lot of countries uh, begin to turn away immigrants, particularly Hungary, takes a very aggressive stance against immigrants, uh, with Viktor Orban taking over the country, uh, while Germany and the United Kingdom take in large number of large numbers of immigrants as more prosperous nations. And so anti-foreign sentiments also propel right-wing governments across uh, across Europe. Le Pen in France becomes probably the most popular of these right-wing movements. She proposes the deportation of immigrants and the banning of the hijab uh, in public spaces. Um, Traditionally, tolerant societies also begin to resist uh, racial and religious minorities. The Netherlands and Austria are two pretty big examples of this. They had been, uh, probably since the end of World War II, some of the more uh, progressive and accepting societies, especially the Netherlands. I think we've talked, uh, especially in early European history, the Netherlands is one of the more accepting nations um, in Europe. And so for the Netherlands and Austria to turn against um, racial diversity and ethnic diversity and religious diversity uh, really shows the movement that is taking place across Europe during this time period. Uh, immigrants are also fleeing from conflict to go to Europe, so it's not just migrant workers, it is also refugees fleeing uh, from a lot of war-torn countries like Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, and North Africa. About 1.2 million refugees uh, come in 2015. And Eastern Europe rejects refugees. Uh, places like Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia uh, work together to sort of uh, kick a lot of refugees out. Um, and so the the number of refugees coming into Europe falls disproportionately on countries like Germany, who are more willing to accept uh, these uh, this mass migration of refugees from the Middle East and Africa. In addition to this, we also have the development of a new urban environment, globalization and automation, and a lot of industrial jobs. And so people aren't really working in the factories anymore. Uh, and this means that cities like Detroit and more industrial centers like, uh, I believe, uh, Toulouse 
in um, in France also begin to decline, while cities like New York City, London, or Paris benefit from finance and tech uh, becoming more uh, sort of mainstream. Essentially, uh, as automation begins to climb in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, a lot more people are, or a lot less people are working in industrial jobs and are instead working in white collar jobs like uh, finances or like in uh, sort of techno technology or in offices. And this requires a lot of educational degrees and social services and all these different things that sort of boost the quality of life of people um, and also the quality of life of society. Because, of course, um, people who provide services and more white-collar things to help uh, sort of meet your basic needs and add a little bit more... Um, I don't know, excitement to your life maybe, or just sort of provide services to help improve the quality of your life. Uh, the quality of life of everybody goes up, especially um, the people living in urban areas who now constitute massive proportions of society. The majority of people are now living in urban areas across Europe. Uh, this is particularly true in places like Scandinavia, the Benelux countries, and Germany, where about 90 to 80% of their populations are now living in solely urban areas. Uh, in addition to the movement to urban areas, we also have the uh, sort of retraction of religion. Atheism begins to increase, and church churchgoers begin to decrease. And so, uh, basically what that means is people are not only removing themselves from a religion, but religious people who still identify with a, with a religion are less likely to go to church or practice their religion as openly or as uh, consistently as they had done so priorly. Uh, even so, though, fundamentalism uh, rapidly grows during this time period. It's a sort of... It's exactly what it is. It sounds like, actually. A fundamentalist view of a religion is basically sort of a traditional view of, of religion, trying to go back to, you know, the good old days of that religion. And so it's uh, largely anti-evolution, anti-abortion, anti-homosexual. It's more strict, and it uh, brings a more uh, traditional interpretation of the Bible. And so these modern versions of interpreting the Bible that popped up uh, in the last chapter begin to go away during this chapter as more strict a traditional way of doing things is seen as the right way of practicing your religion. Uh, as Islam grows across Europe with immigration in the United States and Europe, sorry, fundamentalists in Islam also uh, begin to pop up. Their fundamentalist religion is more about resisting Western values and sort of resisting these colonizers who are trying to take over your religion. Uh, we also have uh, Pope John Paul II and Pope Francis, our two most recent popes, bringing a new face to religion. So John Paul II, he's the first pope from outside of Italy in 300 years. He's from Poland. And then Pope Francis, the current pope at the time of this recording, is the first pope from outside of Europe in, and I kid you not, 1,100 years. Um, so Pope Francis actually um, becoming the pope uh, was a lot bigger of a deal than I originally recognized it to be. Uh, 1,100 years without a pope from outside of Europe 
is a really, really long time to actually not have um, a foreigner outside of Europe. And even somebody, a pope from outside of Italy in 300 years is really shocking as well. And so these two bring sort of a new face and a more liberal tone uh, to their government as well. So John Paul tours the world. He's very anti-war, anti-nuclear. He preaches about how it's the government's responsibility to protect its citizens and protect peace in the world. And Pope Francis is far more socially and economically liberal. He talks about the need to protect the environment uh, against climate change. He, I believe, recently uh, was more open to um, removing the celibacy clause um, that basically says that uh, the Vatican, the people within the Vatican can't marry. Um, and he's also been very open with uh, gay rights and homosexuals, uh, sort of trying to fight against the trend of a lot of gay people leaving religion and turning to atheism or um, be, becoming agnostic instead uh, and being more open about um, sort of homosexuality and gay rights in the church. And then finally, and probably largest of all, is is the growth of the digital age. Computers grow, and the and the digital age uh, basically changes all of society. Uh, and bear with me for a second, because I'm going to sound really, really old, uh, explaining a bunch of um, uh, explaining the importance of uh, technology. But email uh, develops for communication, and websites begin to develop. Um, mostly focusing on news and education, entertainment, videos, music, and basically everything. You know, I you don't need me to tell you this probably, but the internet has a lot of stuff on it. Um, and so the introduction of the internet in the 1990s uh, completely shifts the patterns of news from TV to the phone or computer. A lot more people get their news from apps like TikTok, Instagram, or uh, Twitter instead of uh, the nightly news shows. And this leads to a complete shift in where people get their news. The smartphone also opens up communications, basically allowing you to communicate not only with um, people more quickly, but just anybody from anywhere around the world. And that leads to a more globalized view of the world, breaks down a lot of uh, cultural, ethnic, religious uh, language barriers uh, between people. And then the iPod also shifts uh, how we consume music. Um, being able to consume, mu consume music on your own uh, is a big change from having the radio basically pick uh, what music you'd like to listen to. So uh, the iPod kind of shifts music to being more uh, democratic, I guess, in that um, you can choose who you support and who you don't support, and that sort of allows you to change who is becoming more popular as time goes on. Moving over to the social changes during this time period with art, uh, social media and the digital age affect art consumption, and a lot of art is made um, on social media and on um, and is shared on social media as well. Postmodernism continues throughout this time period. However, uh, neo-expressionism begins to fade with more traditional mediums and narratives returning. Art also begins to question cultural stereotypes, sexual orientation, and uh, like ethnicities between people. Uh, art has always sort of questioned the personality of people and what we assume about people, but uh, specifically culture, sexual orientation, and ethnicity show uh, the changes in, in greater society and the acceptance of a lot of these uh, groups within uh, sort of the time period. 
Um, also, the price of art begins to quickly grow throughout the 2000s. Art fairs, museums, and auctions make a lot of money for people, and rich people just in general begin to invest in art, mostly for tax reasons, um, but also for other reasons like money. Um, multiculturalism also begins to change views of the audience and also begins to show just how a sort of culturally diverse Europe uh, begins to be begins to become during this time period. It mixes different cultures into each other and sort of challenges uh, your stereotypes or your beliefs that, um, you know, cultures are sort of divided. By mixing different cultures and fashions and architectures and all these different things into sort of one homogenous uh, mixture, it shows how humans can uh, live together and thrive together, uh, even if we don't look the same, act the same, think the same, etc., uh, in ter in terms of music, uh, after the uh, after 1985, uh, grunge music uh, rises throughout the 1990s. It rejects consumerism and materialism. It amplifies the distortion of the music and also the feedback in music, and it rejects societal norms and fashion. Hip hop also begins to sponge off into a quote gangsta rap, which is what Spielvogel uses to say, or uses uh, as sort of a definition during this time. So gangsta rap is not something uh, I thought I'd ever have to say uh, for a AP uh, European history class. Um, but gangsta rap focuses on sex and drugs and violence in rap music. It dies off as pop music begins to grow throughout this time period. Pop music uh, th throughout the early 2000s features lighthearted messages and music videos. Radio stations also no longer get to establish the trends. Uh, so music basically being played off of apps allows a more natural growth of music and a more, um, uh, more power to the consumer or the listener who... Uh, um, sort of gets to pick what listen, what they listen to and not have a radio station pick uh, the most popular song. So it's a more sort of democratic, natural growth of uh, the best music rising to the top. And then finally, we have what I've been talking about for a long time throughout European history is this age of globalization. And globalization is essentially this idea that uh, something that's happening on the other side of the world will eventually affect you because our economies, our societies, our cultures, our political lifestyles are so deeply ingrained and sort of woven together that um, you can't really escape it. We are not divided by borders. We are more divided just by distance. And eventually distance will be closed as the ripple effects of one event uh, sort of ripples out and affects everybody around the world. So um, you can see this in the economy. Uh, technology sort of allows a more global dialogue to begin. And as production, distribution, and sale of goods sort of turns worldwide, you have... Um, larger monetary uh, sort of investments happening. You have the creation of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund to help stabilize currencies and stabilize uh, governments' economies. Multinational corporations also get rich and grow very fast during this time period. Many in the United States, uh, Germany, and Japan uh, see a lot of success. Those are the three largest economies in terms of like large national or multinational corporations. Uh, on a list of the 100 richest uh, companies and countries, 51 of them are companies. And so like a majority of companies actually have uh, more money than uh, countries do. And, you know, it's kind of scary and something certainly to say about the 
uh, sort of rise of monopolies and cartels and just sort of the, the massive amount of power a lot of these companies have. Uh, but it also says a lot about how uh, the global economy has benefited and expanded to a lot of people. And so, you know, it's not really a, a zero-sum trade, but it is um, it is a trade nonetheless. And um, uh, eventually, the establishment of the World Trade Organization in 1995 helped settle disputes and encourage free trade across the world. Um, basically, profits uh, from transactions uh, exceed that of products. So essentially, that um, the trading of uh, things of value on either the stock market or just sort of uh, buying something and then selling it off to someone else actually is more profitable, generates more money for uh, governments and companies than actually producing something of tangible value. And that leads to the financial recession, which is another example of globalization. So essentially, the selling of mortgages, which are, again, not really that tangible. You know, the idea of buying a mortgage is not tangible as like buying a house. And so mortgages in the housing market are heavily overrated. Banks rush to sort of get in on this money. They sell a bunch of uh, mortgages. And then by like 2007, 2008, they realize uh, a lot of this money that we said we had, we actually don't have because uh, we overvalued these houses. And so we actually invested or like we, we claim that we have too much money um, and now we don't actually have enough money and essentially overnight this means that a lot of money just disappeared suddenly in the economy and this leads to a burst of the uh, of the housing bubble and so the United States the United States stock market crashes and loses eight trillion dollars and this leads to American investors from all across the world pulling their money out of investments which leads to a ginormous ripple effect again globalization leads to uh, a ripple effect across the world affecting everybody and so in a global economy where everybody is sort of constantly trading and buying and selling things Everybody gets crushed when it goes down. And so France and Germany help bail out other EU countries. The United States passes stimulus checks under the Obama administration. Greece sort of kind of accidentally almost uh, destroys the Eurozone, uh, crashes the um, the Euro with a high debt, which actually is higher than that of the sort of gross uh, domestic product of Greece, basically saying, like, uh, for all the money Greece produces in one year, their debt was higher than that, and that led to almost a complete collapse in the economy, a lot of social unrest. Uh, the, Euro, the EU steps in and uh, decides to give them uh, 240 billion euros, uh, but only if they uh, cut spending and wages, uh, and they also increase taxes for the Greek population, which, again, stirs a lot of social unrest in Greece, but eventually stabilizes the euro. Uh, for Spain, Cyprus, Ireland, Italy, and Portugal, they also severely struggle during the economic collapse. Uh, and basically, a lot of these governments have to cut services and taxes and uh, welfare programs to survive, which leads to a rise in homelessness and poverty, especially in the United States, but also across Europe. And it also leads to a heavy mistrust of governments and government coalitions. And this leads to uh, a lot of conservative governments uh, seeing rise in the United States and across Europe during and after the financial collapse. Additionally, we have an environmental crisis. Basically, the population of the world has grown very quickly. Uh, we just recently hit 8 billion people, uh, and this was only like 
I think like 10 years after we hit 7 billion people. So the population of the world is very quickly growing. 8 million people starve to death each year because we just don't... It's not that we don't produce enough food. We produce enough food to feed 12 billion people. But uh, it's largely Western nations like the United States that are particularly wasteful with their food. We waste a ton of food in the United States. Uh, and we'd rather throw it out than donate it to poorer countries. And so this leads to a lot of starvation, and it also leads to just a sort of a lack of resources for other nations. The United States has about, I think, uh, like 4 to 6% of the world's population, but we, lose, we use like 30% of the world's resources. That huge discretionary, or that huge, um, that huge gap in how much we need and how much we use uh, creates sort of a dependency for us to buy more than we need, and that ultimately hurts other countries that need more than they buy. Um, and, you know, our, our wasteful habits in the United States actually begin to hurt other nations, uh, particularly the 8 million people who, again, starve to death each year. Um, also, climate change uh, threatens to sort of upend our, our understanding of the oceans, the land, wildlife, and resources across the world. Um, nations signed the Paris Climate Accords in 2014 which says that uh, every nation will aim to uh, hit net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Um, not a lot of actual significant change has taken place based on government actions or, uh, from this. Uh, not a ton of investment has come from governments trying to switch over. And so much like a lot of um, AP students, I imagine um, they have been procrastinating for a little bit too long, and when the deadline begins to uh, when the deadline begins to approach, they will uh, probably pull a few all-nighters, or I don't know what a government um, a equivalency to an all-nighter would be. Would it be an all-year? Maybe I don't know. Uh, they'll I guess they'll sure an all-year. They'll pull an all-year, <laughs> um, and they will heavily invest and make sure that they uh, you know tackle climate change. Or maybe they'll just do nothing. I mean, honestly, it's a coin toss uh, between the two. We are probably doomed. Um, <laughs> uh, for social globalization as well, a larger social trend is taken out of the uh, sort of global trends. Immigration for freedom, jobs, and uh, just sort of the quality of life also begin uh, to take place during this time period. People flee authoritarian governments and uh, prosecutions. Uh, people also flee from areas like Latin America uh, f to get better jobs and secure a better standing and quality of life. And also wars across the world create uh, refugees uh, that cause migration crises like that of Europe and in uh, the United States. In addition to this, uh, there is a growing gap between rich and poor nations. Poor nations uh, suffer from a population boom. They have less resources, uh, smaller industries. Uh, less tech, and also wars and civil wars lead to famine and death in a lot of these developing nations. You can see that in Sudan even today. We've got a civil war in Sudan that just started. We've got uh, crises in Yemen and Syria, ongoing civil wars or wars funded by outside forces um, that just sort of devastate populations and, and lead to a lot of starvation among people. And uh, the gap between these rich and poor nations, um, while you you could invest a lot in uh, some of these poorer nations, and 
I think we certainly should, um, it's far easier in the short term to just have people immigrate out of these nations instead of a nation build and invest over uh, you know decades of time trying to build these nations up. In the short term, it's much easier to deal with immigrants and refugees out of uh, destabilized areas. And so all of this taken together just sort of creates this globalization. But uh, for globalization, we also have grassroots campaigns and non-government uh, organizations working to just sort of change the social fabric and political fabric of the world. Uh, they represent groups from across nations and borders. Um, and both of these groups sort of work with uh, governments and government sort of factions like the EU and particularly the United Nations uh, to see, uh, you know, a lot of change take place. And, and a lot of these um, NGOs and uh, grassroots campaigns are creating a lot of um, strong movements that hopefully uh, when taken in into larger federal governments uh, can create positive change for many millions and potentially billions of more people. Uh, some of the issues that a lot of these NGOs and grassroots campaigns are trying to address are pollution, climate change, nationalistic hate between nations, uh, the environmental damage that a lot of nations and uh, pollution has caused, terrorism uh, just at large and on a more local scale, and global problems relating to just sort of an inequality between rich and poor nations like we just talked about. And so overall globalization it's not really a European history thing. I don't really know why it's included, um, but the globalization is, um, whether you see it as a as a good thing or a bad thing, and I mean, I would argue that it's not all good and all bad, um, but no matter how you view it, it is certainly happening, and um, sort of recognizing that and seeing where we go from here, um, whether you like it or not, again, is the best way to prepare for the future, and also, um, prepare yourself for how to best change the world. And ultimately, I think that's um, sort of the sweet ending to European history. You know, this is, of course, the last chapter. And I think the best thing to learn from European history is that being active participants and protesting and fighting for what it, you know is right um, is the best way to see change. And, um, you know, a lot of European history starts with a bunch of nobodies trying to do something. I mean, Martin Luther was a nobody from nowhere in uh, Germany when, uh, you know, he before he nailed his 95 theses uh, to the door of the church to protest, um, you know, the Catholic Church. Uh, the French revolutionaries were a bunch of nobodies until they took to the streets and protested. The philosophes for the Enlightenment, a bunch of nobodies. The scientific thinkers during the scientific revolution, a bunch of nobodies, right? Throughout European history, a lot of good things have come from people who just stood up and said something. And ultimately, I think the biggest takeaway for European history is to just stand up and say something. And so if you've learned anything from listening to this podcast, I hope that the biggest thing that you've learned is that being informed and understanding history is the best way to make history and the best way to prepare uh, for the future. And I hope that, you know, you, you, I get that a lot of people watch these, um, or I guess listen to these podcasts because they are useful to study, but I hope you do remember that a lot of, um, a lot of these things can be applied to your life today. 
and a lot of these problems that we've dealt with in the past um, are problems that we continue to deal with today. And if you can learn from history and how governments have solved problems in the past, you can solve the problems of today and the problems of tomorrow much more quickly, much more efficiently, and in a way that benefits everybody equally. And so, really, I hope that's the lesson you've taken away from European history, because it's certainly one that I have. And with that, it's been an honor. It's the last the last chapter. I'm so happy, um, but also so nervous for the AP test. Uh, and I'm sure you are too. So, I hope, uh, if, if you do any more studying than watching these podcasts, I hope you... Uh, learn a lot from those uh, videos or uh, readings that you do, and I hope that you have a good time on the AP, Euro AP European test. Um, you probably won't have a good time on it. It's kind of horrible writing for like an hour and, and 40 minutes, but nonetheless, I, I hope for your, your best scores, and I hope that uh, these podcasts have helped improve your score. And with that, again, it's been an honor. And I hope you'll come back because I'll probably end up doing something again. I can't really not do something. You know, it's it's just sort of expected of me at this point. So, goodbye.